The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Well, let's give attention to God's Word. We're going to be looking and continuing in, in Mark chapter 8. And we've been talking about Peter and his great confession, his good confession, and then instantly he has this bad counseling. And he gets it, but he doesn't get it. And we've been talking about how the miracle before that, where Jesus does one miracle where he heals a man in stages. And at first when he heals him, he says, do you see anything? And he says, I see men like trees walking. He gets it, but he doesn't get it. And then Jesus touches him again, and then he can see. And I think it's meant to illustrate Peter and coming into stages of seeing who Jesus is, that he sees the Messiah, but he doesn't understand what the mission of the Messiah is. And often we can kind of see things, but we're not seeing things clearly. I heard a humorous story this week of a children's church, and the kids were asked to draw a picture of Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus on their flight to Egypt. So the teacher asked him to all draw a picture, and so all the kids drew a picture, but this one particular child drew a plane. And, he, and on the plane, he had Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus, and then he had somebody up at the front, and the teacher said, well, I, I see Mary, I see Joseph, I see Jesus, who is that? And the kid looked frustrated and disgusted and said, well, that's Pontius the pilot. <laughs> He got it, but he didn't get it, right? You know, so it's like one time one of our kids was asked, what did you learn in Sunday school today? And the child said, I won't name which one, said, "Uh, we learned about Gorilla Gorilla. And Gorilla Gorilla was Priscilla and Aquila. But it was, (laughs) sometimes we get it, but not quite yet. So, So this morning, as we look at this text together, we're going to see that this is actually one of the hardest, I think, one of the toughest passages in Scripture, and that if this passage isn't bringing some conviction of sin, some kind of reflection of what Christ is calling us to, is not only is He going to die and suffer and be rejected, but He's calling us to the very same thing, to the death of ourselves. So if we're truly, if you want to know what it means when he says, repent and believe the good news, the first half of this passage is the good news. And the second half is going to look like what repent and believe look like. It's, it looks like. It's just, a, you know, expanding and developing what Mark 1.15 looks like of repent and believe in the, in the good news. Because here's the good news, and then we'll see what it, what it costs. Hear God's word. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man." Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, 
take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, if you just look at this text, for there's, there's lots here, but it, isn't it interesting that, that Peter takes him aside to rebuke him? And... Jesus is, is beginning this passage and he tells him that the Son of Man must suffer. The Son of Man must suffer, verse 31. But if you look at the, the, the end of 38, the Son of Man's gonna come in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. There we have the classic suffering and glory, which is Peter's big motif in 1 Peter, and in 2 Peter, but particularly 1 Peter, his whole point is suffering than glory, suffering than glory. You see it pretty much in every chapter in 1 Peter. It's Peter's theme of his life is you're going to suffer, and then he's going to end up being hung upside down. He says he's not worthy to, be, to die the way Jesus died. So we know that Peter gets it, and he's going to get what this idea of suffering first and then glory, and that this is the pattern of the Christian life. For the Christian, this is going to be the pattern for Jesus. But here, he doesn't quite get it yet. But we know that he's going to get it, this great suffering and then glory uh, theme. And so um, we're told very clearly at the very beginning here, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected, be killed, and after three days rise again. And this word must is this Little Greek word that means is necessary. It has to happen. And the reason it has to happen is because the scriptures cannot be broken, Matthew 10, 35. The prophecies of the Bible are actually promises. And if they're not promises, then they're not prophecies. They are promises because what God has said, he will do. He's not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. If God says he's gonna do it, He's going to do it. And so really what you see here, when he says the Son of Man must, it's necessary, is every one of God's attributes is on the line. Do you see all of God's attributes in one verse? He has to suffer, be rejected, be killed, three days rise again. How is that the attributes of God? Well, is God all-knowing? Did he not predict all these things would happen? centuries before, so he's all-knowing. Is he not sovereign? Is he not all-powerful? Then it has to happen. Is he not immutable? He can't change. Is he not wise? Does he not ordain the very means that will bring the most glory to himself? That would be his wisdom. Is not God good? Why would he do this? Because he's just. He has to save you, Peter. He has to save the, the, these disciples, these apostles. He has to save us. He's on a mission because his justice, the reality is this, there is no other way for sin to be atoned for and you to be in heaven. There is another way for sin to be atoned for, but you would be in hell. So the only way that sin can be atoned for and you be in heaven is that Jesus 
be your sacrificial substitute, that he must suffer many things. He must be rejected. He must be killed. He must rise again. This is actually the good news of the gospel is that we just sang about it. With his heart's own blood. I hadn't really thought about that before in that song. Salvation to the Lamb. With his heart's own blood, he came to redeem us from the curse. The heart of God, but the heart of man. He has a human heart that's pumping out this blood that has to, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. It must be. So God is just, but he's also merciful and loving. I hope you can see all the attributes of God are on the line. This is the gospel. Jesus is on a mission. It's not a suicide. It's a surrender. It's a sacrifice of love, yielding his life as an atonement for sin, as we sing about in the hymn. There was no other way. Because we have these prophecies that go way back. They go back to the Psalms. They even go back to Genesis, even from the very beginning, that one who's going to strike the heel, and yet he's going to crush his head. And we're told about one who's going to, you know, be a, uh, you know, here's the wood, here's the sacrifice, where's the lamb? God will provide the lamb. Well, God provided the lamb. And then we hear things like Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We hear the psalmist crying out that they have pierced my hands and my feet. They have cast lots for my clothing. Then in Psalm 69, the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me, and zeal for your house has consumed me. And then in Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then we get to places like Isaiah, where we're told that um, I gave my, my back to those who strike. I hid not my face from the disgrace and the spitting. Isaiah 50. Isaiah 53 will be the lamb to the slaughter. Each of us like sheep have gone astray and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Zechariah 12. Zechariah 13. They will look on him whom they have pierced. You see, it had to happen. It was necessary because the scriptures cannot be broken. Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do. And he told them, we're told in verse 32, plainly and clearly. And so Peter's rebuke of Jesus isn't because he didn't understand what Jesus was saying. He actually understood it so well that he takes him aside that he doesn't like it. And the devil doesn't like it either. And so Jesus knows that this is, this is all of a sudden, Peter is now an adversary. Satan wants Jesus to come. Basically, you can have the whole world without the cross. You don't have to suffer. Just worship me and it's all yours. You don't need to suffer. You don't need to be in, in want. Just turn these stones into bread. If you're the son of God, use your power for your own purposes, fulfill your needs. You don't need to wait on your father. If he was good to you, he wouldn't make you wait and you wouldn't be so terribly hungry. Just do it yourself. And you can see Peter pulling him aside saying, just do it yourself, take matters into your hand. You're powerful, we've seen all the miracles. What do you mean you're gonna suffer, be rejected and be killed? Use your power, do it yourself, be courageous, take the land. This is what the, the good guys did of old. And he doesn't get the mission of what Jesus must do. 
And so Peter's good confession in verse 33 is quickly turns into bad counseling and Jesus sees this and he sees that it's basically all the disciples are kind of in agreement with this. Peter's their spokesman and so he rebukes them in front of them all saying, get behind me adversary. That's the word for Satan. Get behind me because you're not, you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. So think about that. Jesus equates the things of man as opposed to the things of God. And to set your mind not on the things of God would be to set them on the things of the devil because that would be synonymous with the things of man. There's only two kingdoms. There's not a third kingdom. There's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of man. The kingdom of God is what God is building where he is at the center, he is its glory, he deserves all the fame. He is the end. He's the rightful heir. He's the creator. He's the ruler. He's the sustainer. He's the redeemer. He's the one who's worthy to receive honor and blessing and power and glory. And the soul that is awakened to that kingdom begins to cry out, not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name, give glory. The soul begins to cry out that's been awakened by God. He must become greater. I must become less. The soul that's been born of God begins to cry out, your name be hallowed. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Forgive me of my transgressions, even as I forgive those who've transgressed against me. Augustine put it like this in the City of God, which is this great book written in the 5th century as Rome is falling apart, and he loved his... He, he did not like to see Rome coming to its end, but he knew that the heavenly city was, was where his heart and its affections were to lie. And he, here's a couple of quotes from, from that book. He says, the earthly city glories in itself. The heavenly city glories in the Lord. What do you glory in? Which kingdom are you a part of? He says, pride is the beginning of sin. And what is pride? But the craving for undue exaltation. And this is undue exaltation. When the soul abandons him to whom it ought to cleave as its end and becomes a kind of end to itself. I mean, I was just reading recently about, um, some of you may have seen this interview, probably hardly, not many of you are big NBA watchers, but before the All-Star game, they interviewed LeBron James, and they were talking with him about if, who was the greatest of all time. And uh, this is what LeBron said, okay? So he was reflecting on this 2016 championship with the Cavaliers. He basically said he no longer thought of MJ as the GOAT, but that when he was down 3-1 to one against the Warriors, this is what he said. At that moment, I was like, I'm the greatest basketball player people have ever seen in all facets. I can play one through five. I can guard one through five. I did something that's never been done in the history of the sport. Now, when you hear somebody say something like that, does that attract you to them? <laughs> what do we, I mean, when you hear that, is that attractive to you? When you hear Aaron Rodgers saying, 
in the right situation, if I go to the right team, I think I can be MVP again. What's wrong with that? Like Gronk and the other NFL players are like, what? You can win the Super Bowl again. You don't say I can win the MVP again. It's all about you. It's, there's something really wrong with that. But with Jesus here in this passage, everything about this screams that he's God. Think about it. He's telling you to take up your cross and to come follow him. Do you know what it means to take up your cross? This isn't some Jewish idiom or expression that, hey, take up your cross. I mean, now we wear one around our neck. It sounds really good. I guess it's the cross I got to bear with the tough circumstances in life. That meant nothing like that in that culture. It was like, bring your rope with you for your execution. Bring your electric chair with you. This is a one-way ticket. You're never coming back. And the cross was the most despicable, torturous, shameful, slow, hideous, disgusting, painful death. You're never coming back. And so Jesus is calling us to death. He's like saying, carry your own poison. Carry your rope with you. There's nothing cool about that. And so the city of man is always about exalting self. And it says, well, Christianity is a crutch. Well, Augustine says in the city of God that a good man, though he is a slave, is free. But a wicked man, though a king, is a slave. For he serves not one man alone, but what is worse, as many masters as he has vices. As many masters as he has vices. You say, oh, you're, you're, you're calling it a crutch. Well, I serve one master. You serve as many vices as your, your vices are, or your gods. And so we're called to lay down our life. It's, it's the end of, of self. This is what, if you want to know what does it mean to repent and believe in the good news, it means this. It's like we sing about all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. When I survey the wondrous cross. Or my Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee all the follies of sin I resign. So Jesus is saying here, if you're going to follow me, say no. To pride, to praise, to the passions of the flesh, to the pride of life, to the possessions that we just want to accumulate more and more, and to the endless praises of wanting to receive them of men. You just say no to self-congratulatory, no to greed, no to lust, no to the lust of the eyes, no to the lust of the flesh, no to accumulating the possessions, no to selfishness, no to bitterness, no to grudges, no to revenge, no to retaliation, no to anger, no to hatred, and yes to Jesus over every square inch of my life, over my will, over my habits, over what I watch, over my daydreaming, over my musing, my meditations, my reflection, my affections, my thoughts, my words, my money, my career, my family, my time, my actions, and my reactions. And Lord, for, I mean, you just start thinking about all the areas of our life, as, as Chris was saying in Sunday school, you know, he's my one thing, but he was saying there's fragments all around. We're, 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 there's so many idols that we constantly have to repent of. And so we say, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. 
Take my hands, let them move at the impulse of your love. Take my feet, let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice, let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips, let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I would hold. Take my intellect and use every power as you choose. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. That's what Jesus is saying. Come follow me. He's worth it. Because he's saying, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? I mean, what do you get if you gain the whole world? What, what do you really get? Do you know what the Bible actually says you get if you start to fill in that answer with the Bible? It says things like he, he feeds on ashes. He, he feeds on the wind. You ever tried to have the f- wind for nourishment? How does that digest through the system? How does that go for you? Does that give you some nourishment? He feeds on the wind. He feeds on ashes. How's that going? I mean, you know, and then Ecclesiastes just says it's nothing. It's meaningless. It's a vapor to have everything. You can have the whole world tucked into your heart. And what do you really have? I mean, you think about it. How much did Rockefeller leave behind? How much did Carnegie leave behind? How much, did Warren, how much Warren Buffett's going to leave behind someday? How much are they leaving behind? The answer is always the same. It's the same for you. It's a, three letter, it's a three-word answer. All of it. What are you going to leave behind? All of it. So what really matters? And yet the world says the craziest things. Like he who dies with the most toys wins. Really? Like, like win what? You know? I mean, if you win the rat race, what does that make you? A rat. I mean, so what, what are we really getting out of this? The world says he who dies with the most toys wins. The Bible says fool. This very night your soul is required of you is what he says to the, to the one who says, I'm going to tear down my barns and bigger, build, build bigger ones because I, I need bigger barns to keep all my possessions. I got bunker crop. I got more. I got to make bigger barns. And he just says, fool, your soul wasn't rich towards God. You, all you cared about was self. In this life, he says to the rich man, you had all your good things. And Lazarus was over here in misery. And you didn't help him at all. And now he's in Abraham's bosom and he's doing well and you're in torment. That's the way it goes. Some years ago, probably over 25 years ago now, John Grisham's novel, The Testament, opens with the dying words of this very wealthy man. Some of you read this story. But this is how the beginning of the book begins. I'm an old man, lonely and unloved, sick and hurting and tired of living. I'm ready for the hereafter. It has to be better than this. My assets exceed $11 billion. I own silver in Nevada, copper in Montana, coffee in Kenya, coal in Angola, rubber in Malaysia, natural gas in Texas, crude oil in Indonesia, steel in China. My companies own companies. My money is the root of my misery. I have three families, three ex-wives who bore seven children, six of whom are still alive and doing all they can do to torment me. I'm estranged from all the wives and all the children. They're gathering here today because I'm dying and it's time to divide my money. 
The twist in the novel is that the greedy relatives gather around the bedside, if you remember the story. They're waiting for their share of this massive inheritance, but to their complete shock, when the last will and testament is read, the entire fortune is granted to an illegitimate daughter none of them have ever known. It turns out that there's this unexpected heiress who's serving as a Christian missionary to a people in Brazil. (laughs) So the lawyer is sent to track down this person to get her to sign the paperwork that she's inherited all all this massive amount of money, and he finally tracks this woman down. Rachel Lane, and she refuses to accept any part of the inheritance. And the money-grubbing alcoholic lawyer is dumbfounded because he believes that man's life consists in the abundance of the things he possesses. And Rachel Lane, the missionary, tells the lawyer, you worship money. You're part of a culture where everything is measured by money. It's a religion. And in the end, she decides to put every last penny into a trust fund for the worldwide work of the gospel, including practical care for the poor people in Brazil. <laughs> Isn't that a great story? So if you're going to live for this world, like what, what good is it to gain the whole world? Like what does that really profit you? Like now and for forever. I mean, Jim Carrey, the actor, he, he once said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they've ever dreamed of so that they can see it's not the answer. <laughs> That's, there, there are people that actually uh, climb the top of the ladder and they get there and they realize it's propped to nothing. It's propped up against nothing. There's nothing there. They're the most miserable people. And yet our world says there's some things in life that money can't buy. And for everything else, there's MasterCard. What would improve your life quality? It gets asked all the time in a survey, and what's always the number one answer? What would improve your quality of life? Answer? More money. Every time, it wins. Yet Henry Ford said, I was happier doing a mechanic's job. Andrew Carnegie said, millionaires never smile. Rockefeller said, I've made millions, but they brought me no happiness. And John Jacob Astor said, I'm the most miserable man on earth. And Vanderbilt said the care of 200 million is enough to kill anyone. There's no pleasure in it. Yet what do we keep running after? More money. If I just get more money, I'll be there. Randy Alcorn says this. He's a Christian writer. He says, wealth is not measured by how much you have, but by how little you need. Are you wealthy this morning? Are you wealthy? Psalm 49 is a forgotten psalm. And it's all about wrestling with the prosperity of the rich. Similar to Psalm 73, but it doesn't get the press of Psalm 73. But at the end of the psalm, this is what the psalmist says. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he'll carry away nothing. His glory will not go down with him. For though he, while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generations of his father who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. End of song. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. We're no different than a dog or a cat, or a baboon, or a giraffe. We're like the beasts that perish. So Jesus is holding out something different. He says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, 
Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Wow. You see, last week I was trying to make a point, and I missed the main point that I was trying to make last week when, um, when I was talking about a compliment is not always a compliment. And I was sharing a couple of illustrations, you know, like if I, if, I play, if, I, if I saw LeBron James playing basketball and I asked him to come be a part of my pickup team on Thursday nights, that we can bring you in off the bench, you know, we, we think you score some points for us off the bench. That wouldn't be a compliment to LeBron, would it? That would be an insult, you know. Um, and there's things that we can say like that where a compliment's really not a compliment, right? And so when Muslims try to connect with us, they say Jesus is a prophet. And that's meant to be like a connecting point. I remember years ago, we, we had a couple of uh, clerics meet with Tom Parker and I. Tom was assistant pastor, some of you remember him. And Tom is usually pretty mild-mannered, doesn't say a whole lot, but when he lays his cards on the table, he lays his cards on the table. So this, these people were, were meeting for like connection points and they, and they were telling us, but but we believe Jesus is a prophet. And Tom looked at them nicely and said, you do realize, you, or he said, you probably don't realize, but that's actually an insult to Christians to say Jesus is a prophet because he's so much more than a prophet. You see, Jesus actually says in Matthew 24, if you wanna read a mic drop, just read Matthew 24 today. He says, I send you prophets. Just think about that. Jesus standing before them has just 35 times told us everything that's gonna happen. I will, I will, this will happen, this will happen, this will happen, this will happen. 35 times he's predicting the future. Earthquakes, famines, false prophets, gospel gonna be preached to the whole world. I mean, 35 times he says, will, will, will. And then he says, I send you prophets. You see, the prophets were all pointing to what? He's the point that the prophets were all pointing to. And to say he's just a prophet, and we can call that common ground, a compliment is not a compliment. That's an insult. Because Jesus is actually saying, if you're ashamed of me, and you're not willing to go public, when everybody's starting to you know, mock the Christian view of this or that, and you're, you're tempted whether you should just sit on it Sit on your hands, put your hand over your mouth. There comes a point where, when are we just ashamed of him? Like Peter was ashamed and he went out and wept bitterly. If you're ashamed of him, he's saying he'll be ashamed of you because ultimate reality is what we would be serving at that point would be self. And the self would be praises of men that we want rather than death to praises of men that I want Jesus, and I'm going public with him, that he is the only one who can save me. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. We're all gonna stand before him and give an account. There will be a reckoning. And so this is this sobering passage that it's actually Jesus is what he's ashamed of is when we're ashamed of him. And it's just another Another passage that shows he, he is the one that everything else revolves around. And he's saying, I'm the one who sends prophets. And he's come on a mission. And his mission is to save us from our sins. The theme verse of Mark is the Son of Man did not come to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, a redemption. He redeems us from our sin by shedding his blood. You see, we're to repent and believe the good news. We've all tried to find our, our ultimate satisfaction, our glory and our worship, either in ourself or in, you know, as Pascal says, we lick the dust of the earth, meaning we go around this whole earth, we lick every square nook and cranny of the earth trying to find satisfaction for our souls. And then we finally look up and realize it's God. He's the only one who can do it. He's the only one who can save us. We can't save ourselves. You can't do enough good works. You'll never be able to atone for your sins. He, otherwise, he didn't need to come. But he's come and he has done it. And it is finished. And so we're going to celebrate in just a few minutes the welcoming to his table that he has made available to us and it's accessed by faith, just believing in what he has done. Would you put your trust in him this morning and would you put the cross on yourself and recognize that to believe in him means to follow him and it means no longer following self. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, forgive us. There are just so many areas, thoughts, worries, fears, affections, misplaced affections, things that we love that we shouldn't love, things that we should hate that we don't hate. There's so many ways that we're out of accord and we ask that you would realign us so we come to your table, renew your covenant love, remind us of how much you love us, and may we be able to say as the people of God afresh that we're crucified with Christ and we no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Meet us here, we ask in your name. Amen.